reality though, we eat bacteria phages all the time. Then you swoop right in with the colostin and the patient should be cured. Molecular scissors, which can help cut DNA. Hi y'all. Welcome to the Antimicrobial Resistance Podcast, presented by the Plan 2 Honors Program at the University of Texas. My name is Nate, and I'm with my colleagues Desi and Mole. And today, we're going to be talking about futuristic technologies to deal with the problem of antimicrobial resistance. In the United States alone right now, there are around 2.5 million cases of antimicrobial resistant infections that crop up every single year. And this causes major issues, both medically and economically. And we just want to touch on a few different ways that we see the future of technology going for antimicrobial resistance treatments. Desi? Hi, I'm Desi. Imagine this, you walk into a supermarket and pick up meat packaged with viruses, and the viruses prevent you from becoming sick. This is the future of food packaging. Hi, I'm Mole. Many of us know about genetically modified organisms, but few people know that we can already create genetically modified populations where an entire strain of bacteria, for instance, can be resensitized to antibiotics they were resistant to. And I'm going to be talking about using CRISPR and gene therapies to use bacterial immune systems against themselves. Without further ado, Desi, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, of course. So my research was looking into antimicrobial active packaging in meats. Active packaging is packaging that seeks to extend the shelf life and safety of food, and there can be many different goals and types of active packaging. Not only can active packaging be applied to different foods, such as meats, processed foods, seafood, and produce, but it can have many different goals, like ethylene scavenging to prevent ripening, moisture absorption, oxygen absorption to prevent oxidation. It can even prevent microbial growth, which was the subject of my research. Even under this branch of antimicrobial active packaging, there are even more distinctions to be made, mainly dealing with the type of antimicrobial agent used and the way the agent is incorporated into the packaging. I looked into the specific example of bacteriophages and antimicrobial active packaging, but active packaging itself is a field of research that has recently blown up and lots of exciting developments are being made. So Desi, I wonder, how does antimicrobial packaging work exactly? Yeah, so when you think of packaging for meat, let's say, you normally have a styrofoam or other semi-flexible tray that the meat sits on, and the meat and tray are covered in a plastic film. So depending on the antimicrobial agent being used in the active packaging, the delivery method is different. And it's super exciting because in addition to researching ways to improve packaging, we can research different antimicrobial agents and their effectiveness. For example, essential oils like rosemary oil or oregano oil can be layered into packaging films, and this has been shown to inhibit microbial growth on the surface of meats and poultry. With bacteriophages, these are viruses that can infect and lyse or kill bacterial cells. Bacteriophages can be layered into the films or put into absorbent pads to be placed underneath the meat products. So there are multiple different types of antimicrobial active packaging. Right now, the biggest problem it faces would be the incorporation of the antimicrobial agent into the packaging, but a lot of different types of films are being explored, biodegraded films, for example. So there's a lot of research that can be done in terms of packaging the antimicrobial agent. 
So Desi, I've heard about bacteriophages as a possible therapy in humans, but why did you look at bacteriophages in the food and meat industry? Yeah, that's a great question. So the issue of antimicrobial resistance actually has a hidden side with the meat industry. 70% of all antibiotic prescriptions in the U.S. are for farm animals. And these antibiotics are often clinically significant in humans. Most of the time, they are administered to animals just as growth promoters or to prevent bacterial infections, not to treat active and diagnose bacterial infections. So there's this whole side of the issue of antimicrobial resistance that I wanted to explore. And I wanted to see what developments were being made. Um, bacteriophage active packaging combined two really novel ideas of bacteriophage antimicrobial therapy with active packaging in meats. And there's a lot of promising research in this relatively new field. So would it be safe to consume food that has been packaged with antimicrobial active packaging? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of people, when they hear bacteriophages or viruses being packaged in meat, it can cause some concern. We're talking about viruses that kill bacterial cells. In reality though, we eat bacteriophages all the time. They're the most abundant biological agent on earth. And using bacteriophages seems to be a safer alternative to antibiotics. Antibiotics are less specific in the bacterial populations that they target. You have antibiotics like penicillin that can act against multiple classes of bacteria. But with bacteriophages, they're extremely specific to the species or strain of bacteria that they infect. And we can use this to create active packaging that targets pathogenic bacteria directly responsible for foodborne illnesses. The FDA has already proved the use of six bacteriophages against listeria. And there are promising studies about bacteriophages as antimicrobial agents, not just in active packaging, but also in humans with a lot of research being done on bacteriophage therapy for burn and skin graft patients. So if this technology has already been approved by the FDA, to what extent is active packaging with bacteriophages currently being implemented and commercialized? This type of packaging is far from being commercialized. There are a lot of limitations with bacteriophage active packaging in general, um, with isolating the bacteriophages, altering them, incorporating them into the films or absorbent pads, and also with determining the temperature at which they are most effective. So there's still a lot of research that needs to be done in this field before it can become wide, widely used in the food industry. Um, but there are a lot of promising, there's a lot of promising potential because the use of bacteriophages in meats and in foods has re less regulations than the use of bacteriophages in humans. So we can use the research that we find from looking into bacteriophages in active packaging, and we can use this data to further our understanding of how bacteriophage antimicrobial therapy works in humans as well. This seems like a really promising technology. So I'm wondering, can antimicrobial active packaging, say with bacteriophages, be able to replace antibiotics? And if not, can it at least reduce the use of antibiotics in farm animals? Um, as far as replacing antibiotics goes, absolutely not. Bacteriophage active packaging, antimicrobial active packaging in general, it has a long way to go from being commercialized and implemented in um, every, the everyday food industry. And also it's only one step along the multi-processing step in the food, in the meat industry. Um, 
they have found that meat processing plants carry E. coli strains that are resistant to tetracyclines, ampicillins, and streptomycins. They have found that workers in meat processing plants are more likely to develop antimicrobial resistant bacterial infections. So while this is, while active packaging is one way to reduce microbial growth in meats and therefore reduce the risk of transmission of antimicrobial resistant bacteria from farm animals to humans, there's still a lot that needs to be done in terms of reducing antibiotic use at the source, reducing the use in farm animals and regulating access. And it's actually really exciting though, because there are a lot of new technologies that are being developed to fight these pathogenic antimicrobial resistant bacteria, not just in farm animals, but in humans as well. And one of them, one of these ways is the use of gene drives. So I was wondering, Mole, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, absolutely. So gene drives are an approach to solving problems. The basic premise is that we have figured out already the technology needed not only to genetically modify organisms, but to modify whole populations. So we know how to do that. The gene drive is really just any mechanism that can spread a target gene throughout an entire population. It's the how of doing it. Let's consider the problem of how to make an entire population of bacteria sensitive again to an antibiotic that it was resistant to. So first, you have to understand that the genetic material in bacteria is split between a chromosome and plasmids, which are these smaller circular pieces of DNA with genes that can sometimes code for antibiotic resistance. So let's say you have some E. coli bacteria with plasmids that have what is called the BLA gene. They would be resistant to the antibiotic ampicillin because the BLA gene is a blueprint for the bacterium to make a protein called a beta-lactamase, which breaks down antibiotics like ampicillin. There are two cool things about plasmids. One, they can make many copies of themselves using the cell's machinery. So let's take the BLA gene. Since it's on a plasmid, right, there's going to be many copies of that BLA gene inside the bacterium, and all of them can cause beta-lactamase to be made. And the second cool thing about plasmids is that they actually transfer between bacteria. If you can modify the plasmid with the BLA gene to somehow resensitize the bacteria to ampicillin, and then that modified plasmid spreads between bacteria, then it won't just be a small fraction of bacteria that are sensitive to ampicillin. But there is a condition though, because remember, I said that plasmids exist with high copy numbers. There are multiple copies of them. So if you modify one plasmid and it causes that bacterium to exhibit sensitivity to ampicillin, that does not mean that the other plasmid copies in that bacterium are changed as well. So if you only change one plasmid, when plasmid exchange happens between bacteria, first, it's not very likely that that particular plasmid will be passed on to the bacterium that your original bacterium is exchanging with. Secondly, even if you do exchange it, now the original bacterium doesn't have that plasmid anymore, right? Because you gave it away. So you cannot spread a gene throughout a population if only one bacterium has that gene at a time. So whatever the modification you make is, you have to encourage it to spread to as many other copies of plasmids as possible. So that would be how you achieve gene drive. And there are two ways to do that that I will briefly discuss. So first is the 
pro-AG system, which is called proactive genetics. It was developed by Valderrama et al. This is a system that is like CRISPR, and I won't be talking about CRISPR because Nate will talk about that later. So what we can do is go to the BLA gene and insert what are called homology arms and also a piece of guide RNA. So in regular CRISPR, you would just have the guide RNA, but in the proactive genetics system, you also have the homology arms. The guide RNA is what tells this protein called Cas9 to target a specific DNA sequence. So the guide RNA basically has a sequence of nucleotides that is complementary to the DNA sequence that codes for the beta lactamase. So first, that's going to be cut. Then the homology arms are going to come in. What they do is they create an RNA that binds to the ends of a piece of DNA that is cut. And it kind of hangs off the end. So it's like if you're like on a building, right, and you look up and there's like a plank and it's partly on the roof, let's say, and it's partly off the roof. And then let's say to your right and left, you both have buildings and they have this sort of scaffolding, like these overhangs, right? Now the guide RNA, it's like a magnet to these boards, essentially these planks. So if you have the homology arms, the guide RNA is way more likely to be inserted to the place that you want. And the place that you want it to be inserted is basically the BLA gene. And when you do insert the guide RNA, it dis disrupts the BLA gene. So the beta lactamase cannot be made anymore. So then if you use ampicillin on that bacterium, it's going to die. Compared to the CRISPR treatment, which is their control, they found that if 100 bacteria survive ampicillin after a CRISPR treatment, only one bacterium survives ampicillin after the proactive genetic system. So that's one way that uh, gene drive can happen. And the second way is the toxin antidote system. So let's say you cut open the BLA gene and you put in another gene there that codes for an inhibitor, which is a molecule that goes to the beta lactamase and essentially gags it. So it cannot break down ampicillin anymore. In addition to that gene, here's the magic. You have a gene for a toxin to be produced and also a gene for an antidote to that toxin. So essentially what this does is if the bacterium doesn't get the gene that codes for the inhibitor, then it's also not going to get the antidote. So the things that are successfully transformed with the gene for the inhibitor, they're going to produce the toxin. And the ones that don't have the antidote are going to die from that. But the ones that are successfully transformed, they have the antidote, so they're not going to die. That puts a selective pressure on the bacteria, and it favors the bacteria that have the modification that you want. And then realize that because plasmid exchange is happening, this plasmid is also going to neighboring bacteria. And in a few generations, perhaps your entire fish farm, let's say, has ampicillin-sensitive bacteria again. So how safe are gene drives? Because you're talking about genetically modifying not just an organism, but an entire bacterial population. Um, would there be any unintended, unintended consequences? How safe is this actually? Yeah, that's a valid concern. So gene drives in general, they can cause irreversible ecological consequences. Ecosystems are very complex and we have to be very sure that the gene drive does exactly what we want it to do and nothing more. But the gene drive itself can actually be reversed. A scientist, James DiCarlo, created this gene drive in yeast, and I forgot what it did, but it was just for demonstration purposes. And then he and his colleagues created another gene drive that reversed 
the effects of the first one. So it restored the yeast to what it was like before the first gene drive was there. So the gene drive itself can definitely be reversed. So one thing that I'm wondering is what would it look like in, in specific terms to administer a gene drive treatment in the clinic? Yes, that's a good question. We're not ready to try this on humans yet, but let's say we have a last resort sort of situation where someone has an infection that's resistant to colistin, which is a last resort antibiotic. In that case, you would take some bacteria of the same strain as the bacteria causing the infection, and you'd use techniques such as CRISPR to insert the plasmids necessary for a gene drive that resensitizes the bacteria to colistin. So some scientists, Vaughn et al., actually found a system that resensitizes E. coli to colistin. So we know it's possible to do this for at least some types of bacteria. So now you take these transformed bacteria and you place them where the infection is. Then you wait until you're confident that virtually all the bacteria have exchanged plasmids and are now sensitive to colistin. Then you swoop right in with the colistin and the patient should be cured. Realistically, since this is a last resort situation, I'd assume the bacteria also have resistant genes against tamer antibiotics like ampicillin that don't cause the serious side effects that colistin causes. So that means you can actually use just a gene drive for ampicillin sensitivity, for instance, to avoid all those nasty side effects. All right, so I think that's a good overview of gene drives. And at this point, I want to transition to Nate, who's going to talk about CRISPR, which I mentioned several times, and I sort of took it for granted that it's just a black box sort of technique that can introduce new genes or perhaps cut genes in a cell. Nate is going to go into more detail about the science of CRISPR and how it can be used against pathogenic bacteria, including antibiotic resistance strains. Nate? Yeah, thank you, Mole. So right now, CRISPR is a gene treatment or therapy that has been in the news quite a bit. Most people usually think about CRISPR being used as really a futuristic technology used for designer babies or um, really kind of crazy applications, but it can also be used as an antibiotic. And there are a lot of different ways to even use CRISPR as an antibiotic, and I'll, I'll cover one of them. But to go over the basic science of CRISPR, CRISPR is a bacterial immune system. So just like you and I have an immune system that recognizes pathogens or um, bad things in our bodies and destroys them, CRISPR does the same for bacterial cells. So bacterial cells can also get sick. Like Desi mentioned, um, bacteriophages can infect um, bacterial cells with their own DNA and cause these cells to lice and break apart. So bacterial cells have developed an immune system to fight against those. And that is what CRISPR is. And CRISPR is a two-part system, more fully called the CRISPR-Cas system. CRISPR is actually an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Palindromic Repeats, which is a mouthful, and that's the reason why everyone calls it CRISPR. Um, but CRISPR is made up of two sections, the cast section and then those palindromic repeats. The cast system is a segment of DNA, which is encodes for what are called nucleases. And these nucleases are basically molecular scissors, which can help cut DNA. 
And the CRISPR section is made up of those repeats of nucleotide bases. And then in between those repeats are what are called spacers. And those spacers are segments of DNA which match up to the viral DNA that wants to infect the cell. So what this looks like in action is that if a bacteriophage infects a bacterial cell and injects its viral DNA into that bacterial cell, the CRISPR-Cas system recognizes that viral DNA because it matches one of the spacers in its library. Then it translates both the Cas nuclease, which is used to cut the viral DNA, and it uses the spacer to help guide those molecular scissors to that viral DNA so that the viral DNA can be destroyed and the bacterial cell can be protected. And this has tons of applications, like I mentioned earlier, but specifically, we can use this as an antibiotic because we can target pretty much any segment of molecular DNA in the bacterial cell. This allows us to cut the strands of DNA where we want them to. So if we can edit that CRISPR system where we can tell the cell to attack very specific segments of DNA, we can target segments of DNA which encode for antimicrobial resistance. This allows us to similar to Mole's topic, to resensitize bacterial cells to be once again no longer immune to the antibiotics that we have overused in the past. Now, we have to think about how we're going to get the CRISPR-Cas systems into bacterial cells. And we do this through a variety of different ways, but one of them actually lines up with Desi's topic, and we can use bacteriophages. As we talked about with the CRISPR-Cas system being used to defend against bacteriophages, we can also use bacteriophages to inject the CRISPR-Cas system into DNA. And so if we create a CRISPR-Cas system that can help remove and cut up antimicrobial resistant genes and put that into a bacteriophage, we can deliver that to a patient and it will infect their bacterial cells that are antibiotic resistant and then resensitize them to antibacterial agents. And then we can treat those bacterial cells with these traditional antibacterial agents which allow the cells to be killed and the infection treated. So that's kind of the background on the science of CRISPR and how it can be used as an antimicrobial agent. That was really interesting, Nate. So I'm wondering why might a CRISPR antibiotic be better than traditional antibiotics? Yeah, so CRISPR antibiotics pose a few different advantages over traditional antibiotics. So traditional antibiotics are pretty broad spectrum, meaning that they kill a whole host of different types of bacteria. So when you go to the doctor and he tells you that you have an infection, the antibiotic that you're taking kills many different types of bacteria and not just the ones that are bad for you. This isn't really great for your gut flora or for other types of bacteria that are on you that are really beneficial for you. In CRISPR, because it recognizes such a specific sequence of DNA, then it only affects and treats those bad bacteria that we want to um, eliminate. So this is way better for the bacterial populations in you and on you that are really good for you. Not only that, but we can treat multiple antimicrobial resistant genes at once. And it really opens the door to using those traditional antibiotics like not many other treatments can. And it really provides a new future where we don't have to worry about continuing to develop increasingly dangerous antimicrobial agents, because right now all we have are increasingly 
more toxic antimicrobial agents that are really bad for you. So CRISPR sounds pretty great in terms of its antimicrobial abilities. Are there any weaknesses to this treatment? Yeah, so the main weaknesses of CRISPR treatments are what we don't know about them yet. CRISPR treatments are pretty far out in the future and CRISPR as an antibiotic is even further off. So the main thing that you need to worry about is safety. Safety needs to be the number one priority when you think about any kind of treatment that's gonna be editing genes. And with CRISPR, it has been known to affect genes in places where it shouldn't. And these are called off-target effects. Because CRISPR recognizes a sequence of DNA and then cuts or affects that sequence of DNA, if it misidentifies a sequence of DNA and starts cutting where it shouldn't, um, that's what we call an off-target effect, and it can cause genetic mutations and other issues. Now, these are pretty rare and not always dangerous, but before we start using CRISPR as a therapeutic, we need to be 100% sure of how to control these off-target effects and how to mitigate their results. So when can we expect CRISPR treatments for antibiotic-resistant infections? It's going to be a little while before you start seeing a CRISPR treatment um, in the hospital or being given to you by your doctor. So there are hardly any CRISPR treatments at all in the entire world. Um, they're even in clinical trials right now. So while the science is really starting to get there, it's going to be a really long time before you start seeing it being prescribed and given out because these are major clinical trials that need to be done, and CRISPR is still being studied um, in labs. So it's going to be a long time, and it's also expensive to develop. Um, the clinical trials required to get new medications into the hospital are quite expensive, and CRISPR, because it is so new and there are not many other technologies like it, it costs even more money and will take even longer. So while CRISPR isn't going to be given out by doctors um, and hospitals anytime soon, it still offers a promising future um, for treating these infections. So let's say we get to the point where CRISPR can be used as an antimicrobial agent. Will using CRISPR change my own genetics as well? No, no, it, it, it won't. So the idea is when you deliver these CRISPR antibiotics, you can deliver them through bacteriophages. And like we mentioned earlier before, bacteriophages recognize highly specific bacterial cells and CRISPR also recognizes itself highly specific sequences of DNA. So the system would have in multiple cases for your human genome to be edited by, by the CRISPR-Cas system. Um, and that obviously is going to be something that if they discovered was a problem, they would discover that in clinical trials and would never be an issue for your average patient getting this kind of treatment in a hospital. So you don't need to be worried about that when, when you start seeing CRISPR treatments hitting the shelves in hospitals in, in a few decades. All right, Nate. So I know that CRISPR can be used within gene drives that resensitize bacteria to antibiotics. But are there other non-gene drive applications of CRISPR that would kill pathogenic bacteria? Yeah, there are. So CRISPR can, of course, be used in gene drives to help sensitize bacterial cells to traditional antibiotics. But CRISPR can also be used 
as an antibiotic itself. So if you inject a bacterial cell with a specific CRISPR system that cuts a DNA at a specific site, then it will actually cause programmed cell death for that bacterial cell. So it's, it's different between each cell and the science is relatively fresh, but it's been found that certain cells don't want to pass on to their descendants faulty plasmids and faulty chromosomes. And so that if you cut at a very specific site, you can actually cause that cell to kill itself and nope, not propagate, which can therefore be used as an antimicrobial agent itself. So it can be used, of course, in gene drives and other population-based approaches, but also in a specific patient to wipe out a bacterial infection. Thanks for answering that question. I actually have a, another question that I just thought of. So yeah. is it that the bacteria have the nuclease uh, genes, so like the, the genes for, let's say, Cas9 and the, the spacer system, like, do, do they have that already? And then it's that you only need to give them the guide RNA to tell the nuclease where to cut, or do you also have to like introduce the genes for the nuclease? Yeah, that's pushing a little bit into the, the gray area of my knowledge. I believe it's they're introducing both the Cas and the spacer, because I think the CRISPR-Cas system needs to be somewhat in similar locations to each other on the DNA. So you can't just introduce like just CRISPR DNA or just Cas9 DNA and that be enough. I think you have to introduce it as a system to be effective. Yeah, I see. So like if you can, I mean, if you can introduce one, you could also introduce the other the same way. So like that wouldn't be a problem or anything. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. Well, that concludes our discussion on the many promising and exciting fields in research focusing on combating antimicrobial resistance. I'm glad we were able to talk to Mole and Desi and tackle the issue from all sides. But these areas of research are far from being implemented in everyday medicine, and the issue of antimicrobial resistance is pressing. So we need to work on reducing overprescription of antibiotics, developing diagnostic tools that are readily available, and educating both physicians and patients on the importance of treating antibiotic resistance. We want to give a special thanks to Patrick Wiseman, the Communications and Marketing Executive Director at the University of Texas at Austin's Cockrell School of Engineering, and Mark Earhart, the Communications Coordinator at the University of Texas at Austin's College of Natural Science. We also want to give a big shout out and big thanks to Dr. Kiersitz for hosting this class and having us put this together. We want to give credit to the Plan 2 Honors Program at the University of Texas, the National Science Foundation for the grants that funded this course, and Kevin McLeod for the music. For more information on antibiotic resistance in this podcast, go to www.engr.utexas.edu forward slash TC358 podcast. Thanks, y'all.